Uh, welcome back, everybody. Um, so we're continuing um, with the afternoon session now, and the professor will tell us about the the second greatest story ever told. So over to Professor. Thank you. Uh, before I go on with the new subject, I'd like to go back to the end of the previous session. There's a little reading assignment I'm going to give you. Uh, this is from Hayek. Uh, the caption is the expanded order of information, page 8, towards the end. I want you to read it on your own. And if you have questions, feel free to bring, bring them up. Uh, not today, anytime during the course. So I won't return to that, but I think it's interesting, it's a good idea. And uh, I try to encourage you to go back to the original Hayek and, and read it there, from the horse's mouth. Okay, now, the second greatest story ever told. Why second? Well, of course, you know what the first greatest story, what or the greatest story ever told is. It's the Bible, and uh, there was a movie made out of it very many, many years ago, very successful. So I'm thinking of <laughs> uh, finding a producer who will produce another movie with the title, The Second Greatest Story Ever Told. We have some candidates present, and we'll see how successful they are, because after the break, there's a little surprise, and uh, I don't tell you more now, but just wait and see. So the second greatest story is the story of the real bill, in particular how the real bill started circulating. And this is important because according to the fable, which is current in economic circles, universities, but also very much so within the sound money movement. I would say the majority of sound money advocates just take this fable at face value. The fable says that paper currency was born on the day when the goldsmith decided to become a fraudulent uh, warehouseman, because especially in the early middle, uh, in the early Renaissance, late Middle Ages, um, people who had gold, they uh, thought that uh, they are not secure to keep that gold in their premise, on their premises, so they would go to the goldsmith and say, well, would you take my gold and uh, uh, keep it for me? safekeeping and uh, uh, the goldsmith agreed and gave a receipt, a piece of paper stating that so much gold is on deposit. And the owner of the gold, to his very much to his surprise, found that he could actually make payments with this because the name of the goldsmith was very well known, and people 
uh, found that this was a good idea to, because then the gold was still there and uh, they made payments so the new holder of the bill uh, could recover the gold anytime he wanted. In other words, this was a warehouse certificate originally made out in the name of the owner. But then they changed the practice and they said, okay, it's bearer. Whoever has the paper owns the gold on deposit with the goldsmith. So that worked and uh, still a fable, remind you, but so far so good. The trouble started when the goldsmith realized what was going on, that his paper was accepted at face value and circled the money. So he thought, well, that's good business. Why not issue certificate on non-existing gold and put it in circulation? That's wonderful business. So he did that and it worked. And the funny thing, according to the fable, was that nobody complained. They were happy, and the more paper the fraudulent goldsmith put into circulation, I guess it's, a, it's an early medal <coughs> that we are talking about, you see. Uh, the more paper he put into circulation, the happier everybody was because there's no shortage of uh, purchasing medium. Now, I am not denying that this could have happened. Sure, it could have happened. What I am questioning is that this is the valid explanation. And I question this because I don't want to insult the intelligence of my great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents and other people who have fallen such an easy victim to such a crude swindle. I mean, the first, uh, how is the saying? Uh, cheat me once, shame on me, uh, you. Cheat me twice, shame on me. So, you know, first it succeeded, but sooner or later, just like in the case of Madoff, uh, the truth came out. And it's incredible to me, to my mind, that they could just repeat and repeat and repeat the same old crude swindle, and even after it becomes pub publicly known that this is going on, the people will still fall for it. So uh, that doesn't sound right to me. And uh, what is more, I find a better explanation how paper money came into being. And that's exactly the second greatest story <coughs> ever told. So uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but this constant harping on fractional reserve banking. Now I'm not denying that there is no fraud involved here and there and there, but to dismiss 
the whole industry of commercial banking as fraudulent because they create credit out of thin air and put it in circulation. People uh, who have the right to refuse it, they don't. They just happily embrace it. It's too much for me to take on faith. So uh, we'll discuss fractional reserve banking also uh, separately. But here you see the suggestion is this fable what I just explained uh, suggests that fractional reserve banking was or originated from this fraudulent practice of the goldsmith who issued gold deposit, gold warehouse certificates on non-existent gold. Now, I'm not saying it never ever happened, but I'm saying that it was not the origin of the paper money system. Uh, because uh, uh, of various reasons which we are going to see in greater detail. So, what is the true explanation? The true explanation is that the, the paper money originated from real bill circulation. According to some authors, real bills existed since time immemorial. In fact, originally it looked more like a letter of credit. Somebody who was traveling, say, from Rome to Athens, and there was a, 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 a lively trade relationship between the two cities, uh, say, uh, at the time of birth of Christ or something like that, 2,000 years ago. And uh, this person was traveling from Rome to Athens uh, planned for a longer stay and he needed uh, resources to survive, to live in a strange city. And he thought it was unsafe to carry this in, in the form of gold or silver. He, the, there were uh, sea voyages involved and, and there was uh, piracy um, uh, in the Mediterranean and uh, uh, so he was thinking of some better ways and taking advantage of this trade this person was smart enough to uh, think that there were merchants in Rome and merchants in Athens who dispatched goods and he assumed that the payment in the form of gold and silver was not going in opposite directions. It just didn't make sense. So he assumed that only the difference was transferred in the form of gold and silver. In other words, there was credit, commercial credit. And therefore, he assumed that there must be merchants in Athens who owe 
payment to uh, his correspondent merchant in Rome. So he looked around, asked around, and found that indeed there was a merchant in Rome who had shipped the goods which hasn't yet been paid. So he asked him, well, can I buy that receivable from you in Athens? And there's no shipment needed because I pay you right here in Rome, and you give me a letter of credit, and if, if the pirates take it from me, they won't have any use for it because it's a personal letter. So uh, when I arrive in Athens, I will go to your correspondent and present it, and he will give me money. And then we save a lot of trouble that way. And of course, the merchant in Rome agreed, and that was done. And this was an embryonic form of the uh, bill, bill of exchange, you see. Uh, and in fact, we have a document testifying to this. Uh, no lesser of an author than Cicero. Uh, his correspondence with another guy called Atticus uh, survived. And in this letter, Cicero asking Atticus if his son, who was going to Athens to study, uh, would be all right if he takes a letter of credit and and we don't have the answer of Atticus, but the question was asked, and we can assume that if Atticus had any intelligence, he must have agreed that this was indeed a good idea, and then they found the way to put this into uh, effect. So we know that much, but we don't have to believe that this was done very widely because th there is no surviving evidence, there are no uh, surviving bills or letters of credit which would prove it beyond doubt. So we might just start our little story in the 14th century, Italian cities, port cities mainly, Florence, Genoa, now Venice, yeah, sorry, Venice is a port city, and Genoa is a port city. Uh, Florence isn't, but it does have the uh, uh, port which belonged to the uh, Florentine uh, Republic. What's the name of it? So actually that's what made Florence great because it had easy access to sea uh, uh, travel because of the proximity of... Alright, so in these, at least in these three cities, but perhaps in others as well, very much about the same time, they invented the bill of exchange, which eventually became a circulating medium. 
And this was a very, very great invention indeed. And uh, it's comparable to the inventing of the wheel. Or late, uh, nobody knows historically when the wheel was invented, of course. But later on, they invented money as we know it, because originally it was not money, but it was barter. And then the market process promoted one uh, commodity, which people accepted even if they had no need, personal need for that, because they knew that this had the highest marketability, so if they needed to buy something, it was much easier for them to offer this unneeded or not needed commodity when they wanted to purchase something. What they had to sell had no uh, real marketability, so they had to find a party which just needed this. But it was very unlikely that this other party had the good which I needed, so therefore the trade couldn't take place until they discovered that if they hit on the most marketable good, then uh, they just exchange it for the most marketable good, and that could be bartered away for what you needed. And as we all know, the most marketable good was gold or silver. We'll go into, or, or, or it's another subject of another course, uh, but let's just leave it at that. The most marketable good became most market marketable because it had the uh, best marginal utility. Now, all commodities are subject to the law of declining marginal utility. The more you have, the less you need an extra portion. And uh, the most marketable good, let's assume it also has declining marginal utility. However, that marginal utility declines less than any than the marginal utility of any other good. Well, obviously there must be some such good, and we don't care what it is. We know it became gold, could have become something else, but this is a fact that there is one most marketable good. So this is the origin of money as Anger explains, and nobody could improve on that theory. So what we are talking about here is something similar, but not exactly the same. It's the question how the bill of exchange came into existence. So that might say we know much more about it than what Manger was speculating about, and the invention of the wheel, we know very little because it's too far back in history. But uh, these examples of Florence, Venice, and Genoa are close enough to us in time that actually where there are examples of 
these early bills, which are preserved, and you can look up uh, in the museums or libraries and study them. And they have been studied very thoroughly. So there's all the evidence there that how they first appeared and then a couple decades later they improved, they were more careful to spell things out, such as what is the exact cargo in that boat which is coming from the from somewhere, Far East maybe, and uh, all this document is on record. So th there is really no question about this, and th the only problem is to explain how ultimately these early commercial paper examples bills of exchange, real bills, uh, became so marketable that without any questioning uh, people accepted them in payment and they started circulating. Uh, well, money they were, but ephemeral money because they all had a date of maturity. And, uh, it, stands to reason, and you can check it on the record, that the usual maturity was at most 91 days. And we already mentioned this is due to the uh, fact that the seasons of the year last a quarter of the year, 91 days. After 91 days, the type of merchandise in the greatest demand is going to change. So if you could not sell your merchandise within 91 days, then probably you won't be able to sell it for 365 days. Because you have to wait until the same season of the year comes around. But by that time, taste of people could have changed. There could have been uh, improvements in the production facilities which made the good cheaper. And uh, uh, there was enormous risk. But was no risk if you can sell it, if you know that you can sell it in 91 days. Uh, the risk of being able to sell it 365 days later grew enormously and it was just a risk which ordinary merchants could not carry. So this is the importance of the date that it, these short-term credit instruments, the real bills, matured in no more than 91 days. And Indeed, that's exactly what happened. So uh, we owe it to the Italian uh, inventive spirit. Uh, remember, Italy at that time was not a unified state. These were cities, uh, self-governing cities, Florence, Venice, Genoa, and maybe others as well. And, uh, but 
they hit upon the same idea. Thanks to the Mediterranean, it's a warm sea, it's navigable. Uh, there no, they no icebergs in the Mediterranean, of course. And uh, uh, already the Greeks discovered the tremendous uh, potential of sea trade through sea voyages, even before the uh, sail was invented, they had these uh, uh, boats, also military, but we are talking about the commercial boats, which the slaves powered with their paddles sometimes, 30 on one side and 30 on the other, and then there was a slave driver who gave the beat and they just had to do it on, uh, on the beat. And uh, of course that improved sail came into use and so on. So uh, this is what happened. And as I say, the remarkable thing was that simultaneously in at least three cities they hit upon the same idea and it worked, and it was a very, very great success. So, I go to the end of this chapter, and uh, talk about the merchants of Sevi. You might say, well, uh, something wrong, it's a merchant of Venice. No, 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 this is the merchants, in plural, of Sevi. Why? Because Sevi was a great fair city. By fair city, I mean a city where regular annual fairs were held. So we are talking about a landlocked country where you can travel in almost any direction, hundreds of miles. <clears throat> so Italy would not be a suitable example for that, uh, because I am assuming that this is land transportation. If a city had the brilliant idea of organizing annual fairs, they could invite participants from as far as 500 miles away, which in those days was a tremendous distance, because these were horse-driven carts, and uh, for example, if you were a shoemaker or a bootmaker, then you would load as much, uh, as many pairs of boots on your cart as you could, and have your horses or team of horses and set out to Seville, because there is the great city, would a great fair, annual fair, and uh, uh, it would last a whole month. So you can sell out your production uh, in a month's time. And then you had need for other things which you can buy, and 
you won't come back with an empty cart because you buy the merchandise you need, either in your production or for consumption or whatever. But this was a very efficient way of trading. You had the merchandise you wanted to sell, and on the way back, you had the merchandise what you needed. And uh, there's only one problem. You see, the, and, and the big problem indeed it was. What was the problem? I mean, the idea is brilliant, but there is a but. What is the but? The but is that you have to sell before you can buy, right? I mean, it's, in theory, it's perfect that you have the goods to sell and you want to buy. But if you cannot sell the goods early enough and you, your last pair is sold on the last day of the fair, it's too bad because by that time the cream of the crop is gone. You see, if you wanted to buy, you want to be an early bird uh, because it's a finite fair. And, uh, and those who had money, they bought early, they got a good deal, uh, but if you waited, then you had just the leftover, maybe second uh, grade or third grade, which the quality was no good, and certainly the selection was much narrower. And that is a very, very great problem. If you ever traded, you would have this experience that you arrived late, to the party, to only the leftovers. It didn't appeal to you. So how could you solve that problem? Well, you could solve the problem to take a lot of gold with you together with the boots. But that was not a very good idea. Number one, you could be robbed. Number two, you would have to have the cash gold, and you may not, because uh, 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 gold was scarce and uh, you would have to borrow it, and that involved other costs. So you had to find a better idea than that. And they indeed found this better idea. What was the better idea? And that is what I assume the city fathers of Seville were ingenious because they thought of that. Together with the fair, they set up a clearing house. So when these carts with merchandise from different directions arrived, they registered their merchandise with the clearing house. They showed them this is what we have and so much we had and such quality we have. And then the clearing house uh, gave them chits which were pieces of paper. Don't call them bill of exchange, but very similar. Uh, the idea was that for during that month, these you could spend. Well, that was credit, really, wasn't it? Because uh, even if you couldn't sell out your merchandise the first day, you could still buy the first day of the fair. You see, because you have to cheat. And 
so you were not handicapped by the fact that your merchandise was selling out, but rather slowly. Originally it was a great handicap, but then this was eliminated by this chip system. So then, there was uh, very little uh, gold needed to maintain this fair, because at the end of the fair, uh, you had to present your chips to the clearing house. And then, only the difference had to be paid in gold. If you If you sold less than you bought, then okay, you could stay say you could pay the bulk of your purchase with chits, but there was a difference that you had to pay in gold. And that was reasonable because that was the smaller by far the smaller part of your what you owed to the uh, clearing house. And then conversely there were some people who sold more than they bought and they had to be paid and that was the clearing house's job to make sure that if you had extra chips they will uh, pay you in gold. So that was the clearing system invented. I'm, I'm pretending that it was inventing in Savvy. But Savvy was just one of the great uh, fair cities. There was one in France also, maybe have been more. I think Lyon was the French. In Germany there's Leipzig, which still exists today, the famous uh, fair. Hmm? Leipzig Fair. Leipzig Fair. Leipzig Fair, yes. And um, there might have been others, and uh, I haven't done the research, and I'm not really interested, I'm not an historian, but I think it's a fascinating topic for an historian to actually show where the original idea came from and how it spread, and ultimately Europe was spotted with these fair cities, and sometimes there was division of labor, the city fathers in Seville agreed with the city fathers in Lyon that you do it in the spring, we'll do it in the fall. So there was always a possibility to uh, take your merchandise to a fair city and this was a very, very great improvement in the trading system. Remember we are talking about uh, the Renaissance uh, so at that time, uh, trade was much smaller than it is, but this fair system gave a boost, and this was uh, for the good of the whole society, because more merchandise available at a cheaper cost and a much greater variety, quality, and so on. So. The Merchants of Seville, and this is, uh, this is a wonderful thing. I just like that example because it shows that credit can originate in consumption. There is no, if you think of it, there is no landing and borrowing involved. Absolutely none. It's just the fact that the merchandise you take to Sylvie 
has a high marketability. In other words, there is a high enough demand for it so that the credit can be issued by the clearing house in advance and then you can spend even before you, you uh, sold. So this natural sequence, first sell, then buy, could be overruled. Wonderful! Who thought that this is possible? I mean, since uh, time immemorial, you always had to sell first if you wanted to buy. And now all of a sudden, you can reverse and take advantage of the early bird privilege that you uh, have a choice, uh, choice merchandise. You are the first one. You buy on the first day. Because you registered your merchandise, the clearinghouse got the chips, uh, you can go ahead and buy. Time to sell. It's a fantastic invention comparable to the invention of the wheel, I, uh, <laughs> I keep saying, but that the, if you really think it over, you will agree with me that after thousands and thousands of years of trading experience, the, whoever invented this fair system was, uh, did a, a very great benefit to humanity, because this, without this we wouldn't have had the Renaissance uh, giants of arts, painters, sculptors, architects, and then the literary achievements of the Renaissance. It was all made possible by the merchants who created the wealth. And they did not do it by working at a desk or at a uh, bench, but they did it by trading, carrying uh, the surplus merchandise from one place where there was a shortage of that and vice versa. So this is what made wealth possible, not just uh, commercial wealth but also literary and artistic wealth and scientific too. I mean we know the tremendous inventions during the Renaissance, such as the telescope and uh, the uh, pendulum and all kinds of other things, which uh, contributed a great deal to the uh, advance, advancement of our civilization. The, at the very root of it, you find trade. Trade. More trade, better quality, better organized, better financed, and the credit. Credit which is based on consumption. In spite of whatever, whoever else says, the fact is that there is such a thing as credit uh, arising out of consumption. You see? You don't have to say. It's the same idea. You have to sell first in order to buy. But that can be the same here. Uh, it's, uh, you, it's not necessary to save if you want credit. Because there is such a thing as credit arising out of consumption. And how does it arise? Through real bills and through cheats and the great city fairs. You see? That's very, very important. <laughs>
I introduce that term which might be useful to compare the two types of credits arising out of consumption. One is the bill of exchange. I call it vertical <coughs> credit. And the credit used in the city fairs, such as Seville, I call horizontal. Um, I find it convenient to make that distinction because Vertical means that there is this production process, the food chain, you see? The uh, maturing merchandise, semi-finished good is handed from one producer to the next, to the next, to the next. So that is vertical because the product, to begin with, is pretty far from the consumer. And then it gets closer, 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 closer. So I think of this as being a vertical movement. And in fact, this is what uh, another great Austrian economist, a student of Menger, did. Uh, his name is Böhm Bawerk, double name, Eugene Böhm Bawerk. Uh, who did not make the same mistake, by the way, what Mises did. In fact, they were arguing on this, that beside uh, time preference, there is productivity. And Böhm Bawerk was, he wrote a, a big treatise, a big book, several volumes, on, on uh, capital and the rate of interest. And he was consistent in mentioning the uh, productivity theory. He did not give it up. And Mises uh, criticized him for that. He said, no, no, no. The rate of interest is a purely time preference phenomenon. The fact that every individual values present goods more highly than future goods. It's not just because there is plenty of slip between cup and lip, not just that. But it's, he says, it's also because uh, this is a philosophical concept very much like time, space, and so on. So it is the structure. I'm not going to review that philosophical discussion, but I think uh, Bern Barberk was closer to the truth. But I'm mentioning his name here for a different reason, because he was the first one who introduced the concept of, uh, how did he call it? Uh, order of goods. He's talking about semi-finished goods and he attached a number to every one of them which number uh, really represented the distance between the good and the ultimate consumer. So the uh, merchandise in the hands of the retail merchandise is 
first order good because it's ready to be sold and consumed. But then there are ingredients which go into the production of first order goods uh, which are not ready for consumption per se. You've got to do some more work on it before it does. So these are called second order goods, the ingredients of the first order goods. And then the question arises again, well, what, how are they made up? Well, they are made up from other ingredients. <coughs> and uh, the input into the production of the second order is what you call third order. And then you go on, fourth order, fifth order. <coughs> and of course, as the uh, division of labor improves, gets more refined, there are more and more and more layers. So in other words, uh, it could be that the production of boots uh, sometime in the Middle Ages took, say, four layers. And uh, 200 years later, it may have taken 40 layers because there were other layers which got specialized to the extent that they could be considered independent industries. Could be the producing leather or uh, various chemicals which could make the leather uh, smoother. Uh, you use your imagination to think of various possibilities how to refine. And boots is not the best example, then think of uh, watch manufacturing, you see, which was a very important industry in Switzerland, of course. And uh, then uh, eventually quartz uh, mechanism came in and uh, this all tremendous uh, uh, developments in the mechanical watch industry uh, was uh, not completely lost, but the fact is that it became outdated. So, uh, but you can be sure that this meant increasing the number of steps a great deal. Another thing is uh, there is a wonderful little. piece of, uh, uh, what shall I call it, well, um, I guess it's popular economics, the title is I the Pencil, I the Pencil. So the pencil speaks to you and says, well, you want to know that I'm not as simple as I look because and then he tells you that uh, the wood comes from Africa, the graphite comes from Asia, uh, and, and uh, how very complicated indeed it is to produce pencil as we know it. It's not as simple as you look, it's just the core of graphite surrounding it with uh, uh, some quality wood. But, a very complicated thing indeed to produce a pencil. 
and it's very convincing. So uh, we are talking about various orders of goods from first order, which is the readily marketable merchandise consumer good, and then so this I call vertical. Now, that happens when, and that's financed through bills of exchange. These merchants at various levels hand over the semi-finished good, and we say it's maturing into the gold coin. Uh, the uh, semi-fair example is very different, because the, uh, they are all, we are assuming that all these goods at the fair, or most of it anyhow, are first order goods. Um, people from different regions who came to the fair uh, make an exchange of basically consumer goods. This is strictly not true because probably the bootmaker wants to buy some leather, which is a semi-finished good. Uh, but it, for the sake of simplicity, let's assume that mostly we are talking about ready, consumable merchandise. So it's an example of horizontal trading. Credit which circulates horizontally, <laughs> but credit still arising out of consumption. So uh, this I found useful, I don't know, perhaps you, you will also, this is not terribly important, but I, in, in my thinking process it did play a role. <coughs> and I'm going to close with the idea that real bills never cause inflation, in spite of my opponent my detractors. I have been attacked, uh, especially from people, by people from the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama, or people who uh, are, uh, well, I don't know why I blame uh, people at the Mises Institute, perhaps some of them, uh, who, who criticize this rather viciously, uh, really were not instigated by uh, Mises Institute. Uh, but anyhow, we just may. They say, yes, real bills are a great source of inflation because that's just like fractional reserve banking. They create credit out of thin air. And it doesn't originate in savings. All credit must originate in savings and must be uh, lending and borrowing in more. Well, I am very uncompromising on that. That credit which arises out of consumption has nothing to do with savings and not, there is no lending and borrowing involved. It may look like that. But it's only formally, it's a, uh, it's a false impression you are getting. It's an optical illusion. When uh, a merchandise,
Paris, semi-finished merchandise, uh, produced at, say, the fifth order level, and then it goes to the fourth order level. This is not a landing and borrowing arrangement. Now, my opponents say, no, no, we are wrong. Uh, the fifth order guy who delivers this to the fourth order guy, he is landing. And this guy is not paying cash, so he's borrowing. And the discount is the interest which you pay on the landing. You see? This is what they say, and it sounds very convincing, and you may be tempted to accept their argument, but this is completely wrong for the following reason. The fifth order guy is further away from the consumer. In fact, five, five times removed, whereas the fourth order guy is only four times removed. So, which one is closer to the gold coin which will ultimately extinguish all, this, uh, all these uh, obligations? Of course the fourth order guy. So he cannot be the borrower. If anything, he has a, bit of, a little bit of advantage because he's closer to the gold coin than the other guy. So who is in the driver's seat? If, if anything, I would say the fourth order. But I'm not even saying that. I'm saying that the fifth and fourth order guy form a, a partnership. Without, just like a pair of scissors, there are two blades. And if you take away one blade, it's useless as a scissor. This, this is just useless. You've got to have both. So you need both the fifth order and the fourth order guy to be a workable partnership. And then you produce something which the consumer will buy and is happy to buy and is waiting for it and it has the maximum marketability. So this is completely wrong to break it up into a lending and borrowing process. There is no lending. It is a partnership and it will prosper only if they cooperate. And cooperate they indeed do. And the way they cooperate is that they pass on the bill of exchange, endorse it and pass it on, and use it as a payment. And that's the only way to understand. If you force your way into this um, push the idea of lending and borrowing, you are on the wrong track. You will never understand this marvelous market process which uh, through the vertical uh, movement of the goods and the opposite movement of the bill of exchange uh, makes possible. So that's my position and uh, and we are going to spend the rest of the course to uh,
discuss the further details, but you see it now. The problem is uh, these two points of view, and, uh, and uh, I am very, very uncompromising on that. You, you may still feel free to criticize me if you think that I'm wrong, I'm open to criticism, I'll do my best to explain it, but I, for the life of me, I cannot see that you can explain the process, the market process, maturing goods, ultimately leaving, uh, reaching the stage of being marketable and very much in demand. <laughs> uh, there is a last bit here which I just mentioned and then we'll have a break. The world trade today. You see, this is here the watershed year is 1914. Before that, we had real bills, and the world trade was financed through short-term credit, real bills. And uh, there was an enormous improvement in world trade during the 19th century, up all, all the way up until 1914. And of course, World War One was a great setback, but it, the trend was not picked up after World War Two. And there was, uh, you can check the statistics. I did many years ago, and uh, it wasn't easy. But I came to the conclusion that the setback in the level of world trade, the last peace year was 1913. And after that, there was uh, a big, big reduction in the level. And then, of course, the Depression came, and you might say uh, after World War II, it, will start, it could start uh, flying again. Well, it did, but it did not reach the level of 1913 until sometime in the late 1970s. And that's surprising. I mean, you might have thought that well, there was a war, there was a depression, there was another war, and then peaceful years, relatively peaceful. And then the world trade would recover quickly. After all, uh, you know, there were newly invented things, and people became more prosperous, they could afford to spend more. But the fact is that it did not happen. And I couldn't find any other explanation but the absence of real you see. So the world trade today is in very bad shape because we are in the danger of trade wars, competitive devaluation. One country is twisting the arm of another, U.S. twisting China for revaluing the currency. China is reluctant to do that. And there are any number of other examples. And all countries are falling over themselves trying to make their currency cheaper because they think this is a trade advantage. And it's just the opposite. So we are seeing a tremendous loss of wealth 
because this is self-destructive. Each country is working against its own interests. Well, I think I uh, stop here and uh, be prepared for a little surprise after the break. But if you have questions, we'll uh, we'll try to answer them. Thanks very much, Professor.